Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM Podcast. My guest today is Chris Wiseman, who's a guitar player, producer, songwriter, mixer, and I would call him an entrepreneur in the metal world. He played with uh, Currents, if you've heard of them, but on the side, he had a band called Shadow of Intent, which was actually in the March 2020 Nail the Mix, which is considered to be the torchbearers for Deathcore. And what's really, really crazy is that they have had a really impressive amount of success completely independent of the industry, like this is the dude behind it all. He's got a great mind, a really cool musician, and uh, excited to have him on. So I present you Chris Wiseman. Chris Wiseman, welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So I'm going to start by talking about myself a little bit, even though this is about you, but uh, it's something that I kind of relate to you on, and I have a kind of a similar background. You stated in an interview once that Guitar Hero 3 the beginning of your journey into heavy music, but your parents being professional musicians in the classical world crafted your early musical years. And my dad is from the classical world too. He's a conductor. And so I learned piano and violin before any of this metal shit happened, like a decade before you started by playing cello and somehow you ended up in metal. A lot of people have asked me if it was like a rebellion thing against my dad or something, which it never really was. What led to that switch for you? So yeah, that is interesting that that's pretty much my exact situation. I started piano at six, cello at 12, and just playing those instruments was really my parents' idea. I just wanted to play video games. <laughs> so at six, you said piano? Yep, exactly. And then 12 was cello. At six, you wanted to play video games? At every year of my life, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, then did they make you do it? Sort of. Uh, piano, I was more into, but cello, they really had to press a little more. But I would take weekly lessons. I would join the school orchestra, stuff like that. And then, yeah, at age 14, we'll say, is when my brother showed me Guitar Hero 3. 
And I didn't know what metal was. I didn't know what Metallica meant, what that was. But I really enjoyed the game and learning the music in the <laughs> game. And yeah, like you, it was not a rebellion thing at all. I just found something I genuinely enjoyed and was passionate about and knew that is what I wanted to try to do for real. Get a real guitar and try to play these songs and maybe one day have a band of my own. And the more I did it, the more I realized I really don't like playing cello or classical music nearly as much as I enjoy this. So... Yeah, in my mind, it wasn't a rebellion thing at all. I just found something that I really liked and that I wanted to pursue. Well, pet peeve of mine, I'm curious how you feel about this, is when people say that classical and metal are the same thing because they're, they're so not, in my opinion. Like, metal is riff-based, riffs repeat. I mean, there might be, like, variations on them, but it's, it's riff-based. Uh, and there's usually not going to be more than two or three different things happening at the same time. Orchestral music is not riff-based. It's theme and variation-based, and it evolves and morphs and does crazy shit, and there's no real defined tempo, or it's so not the same thing. So It just, it just bugs me when people say it is. So I think some people like hear Marty Friedman or Yngwie Malmsteen or hear Metallica open Fight Fire with Fire, with like that little acoustic thing and say, oh yeah, metal is Ooh, plenty. it's classical. Yeah, and I mean, maybe the musicians learned a Baroque on acoustic guitar once and then said, oh, I want to try something like that. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah, my dad, you know, I'll talk to him about classical versus metal sometimes and he literally says metal is not complex. There, there's like no theme. Yeah, theme like you said. That's the word he used. And yeah, the song structure is very different. I showed my dad Tesseract once and he said, this is very repetitive, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> Man, I showed my dad Demu Borgir once like because I thought he would be impressed by the orchestration and all he did was talk shit. About how like basic and repetitive and exactly, so yeah, yeah I'm not gonna try to make my dad understand or appreciate metal. I understand that classical music writing or counterpoint is a whole different level of composition that I honestly don't really understand. Like I have learned some Mozart songs back in the day and stuff like that, but I didn't really tear it apart and dive into how it was made much. I understand, like, Alaturka has, like, a repeating section, like, the main theme, and it goes into other stuff. But I never really understood how that's different if metal repeated a part and did a different theme. But I took his word for it and said, all right, well, you're a music teacher. You teach at three different music schools. So if you say that, I believe you because metal... Because you know your shit. <laughs> yeah, metal and rock, I believe, is simpler than what you're doing. So I'll, I'll take your word for it, even if I don't fully understand. You know which band I think comes the closest to incorporating legit orchestral writing structures is a flesh god apocalypse i was gonna guess you would say that they definitely do the look i don't mean it for the superficial reasons i mean like they're actual and not every song some of their songs are like metal with orchestra on top of it but they have some tracks that are legitly written like 
orchestral pieces, like short orchestral pieces. It's that's like the only band I've actually really heard it with. Everything else I've heard kind of sounds soundtracky. Exactly. Not like legit orchestral. I know on their King album they had that two minute song with no metal in it whatsoever. It was like a vocal solo from Veronica with other stuff around it. That one I could definitely see. There is one group I'm sure you're familiar called Igor with three R's. Oh, that shit is intense. Yeah, that's bonkers. But they also do some of the opera style vocals. I know they delve into about 10 different genres throughout a song, but... (laughs) They're so good. Yeah, there's definitely some stuff that's reminiscent of the classical style mixed in. There's a certain song by Flesh God that I need to find on YouTube. I'm looking right now. I just need to recommend it. But while I'm looking for this, I want to kind of touch on something you just said, that uh, it seems like most people in metal who say that they've got a classical thing might have learned like a Vivaldi exercise. And that's what I've always thought. Like, it sounds to me like they got some transcription of what would be the most basic exercises for like a violinist learned it on guitar and then called that classical but really it's like stuff that like an 11 year old violinist (laughs) would like learn for a recital or even better when they put on their resume that they're classically trained yeah like what does that even mean yeah i have played classical music before but i don't know if i would be truthful in saying that i'm qualified to be classically trained but i've briefly immersed myself throughout a couple of years of the classical world, but I have not taken a counterpoint class or anything like that. When you switched over to guitar, did you just drop (laughs) classical altogether? Pretty much. Cello, I really couldn't wait to get away from. I honestly just hated the feeling of the bow and the rosin, you know, nails on a chalkboard, that feeling. That's kind of just how it felt. Just gave me the shivers, the chills, whatever. (laughs) The pizzicato was fine. I enjoyed playing it pizzicato, you know, without the bow. And then piano, I stopped taking lessons at that point, and I definitely played a lot less. But I still thought, like even in my first band, I still wanted to throw in keyboard parts. So I still played the piano time to time, just All my chops, you know, are gone now. Like the theory of piano, I still know just as well as I did from when I started. So I think I did drop them, but I still kept everything about the piano in mind, just the theory of the piano. But as far as my technical skill, that all went away. Does it inform your writing at all? Absolutely. Everything... MIDI I do, I actually type into the piano roll on Logic, and as any of you Logic users know, it's just a big piano, and you can see that. Even for drums, you look at the piano, and yeah, I'll use piano things for writing. I mean, you do orchestration in your writing. Right. And the thing that I've noticed, like, it does have like a soundtracky kind of feel, which I think is most appropriate for what you do on the metal side. But there's something different about the way you do it to where I can tell that it's got like a real kind of feel to it, or I don't know how to describe it, like a legit kind of feel to it, as opposed to just like, you know, sometimes you hear these bands that incorporate orchestral elements and like they're like in the wrong key and like it makes no sense. It's just like some dude plinking around with like a spooky choir. Exactly. Like I I don't hear that at all. 
Yeah, the key of the song is always very important to me. Every song I've written, I always ask myself, what key is this song going to be in? And if there is a key change, how am I going to make that cohesive? I don't usually do key changes, but when I do, I try to make them kind of make sense and still make the song flow. Often it doesn't work out that way and I just keep the song in the same key. But yeah, I rarely will have a section where instruments are playing in different keys. I usually just don't like how that sounds. I know progressive bands might be able to pull it off, but that's not really what I go for. I try to... Yeah, but it's intentional when they do it. That's the thing. Like, when they do it, it's not by mistake. By the way, that Flesh God Apocalypse song I'm talking about is Elegy. Okay. That song is fucking sick. It's still, though more towards the baroque end of things because i just don't think metal lends itself to like romantic era kind of stuff but still it's pretty fucking legit absolutely yeah the classical and metal fusion thing i actually find that sometimes it can dilute metal people will ask me why i don't ever use like this specific type of chord like some complex chord and for what i do i think Going too outside the box in that sense can sort of take away from what I'm trying to do. It's hard to explain, but basically if something sounds too classical to me or just, or even too jazzy, that I just as a listener wouldn't enjoy listening it to as much as something a little more, you know, conventional, melodic. I don't want to say poppy because I don't consider this music pop but you know just something that's more familiar to the average listener i mean there's a reason why triads work exactly muse is my favorite rock band and they also have like a legit orchestral influence and they don't really use complex chords either very much they just are masters of triads and power chords and they just use it in such an effective way and I think that that blends with heaviness way better. I kind of back what you're saying. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Definitely a lot of power chords going on, a lot of triads. But honestly, one of the things I look for most is an excuse to add extra semitones into my music. What do you mean? So every scale, every key that I write in will usually have between two and three semitones in it if it's in... A natural minor or one of those modes, it'll have two. And if it's in harmonic minor, Phrygian dominant, it'll have three semitones in it. And I find that if I want a part to sound heavy, adding in those semitone or half step, as some people know it, parts helps a lot. Obviously, I play around to make sure it sounds good and you can't really never use whole tones. But I just find myself very often for any lead or melody will contain always contain a lot of those semitones because another word for it is the minor second they just sound very dark and usually make stuff sound cooler or heavier at least to my ears so do you think in terms of theory when you write yeah absolutely sounds like it yeah but mostly just to make sure i'm writing in a key and i definitely have a not a stock chord progression, but there are chords that I gravitate towards that I know will always give the effect that I want to give. So, And then from there, I branch off and try to make it 
not into the exact song I just wrote, you know. I try to write new songs that I haven't done already, but there are definitely elements that I build off of continually. So is it kind of like the theory comes first or is it the inspiration for the idea and then the theory helps develop it in a cohesive way? Exactly, yeah, more of the cohesive thing. As far as theory, it's just telling me, am I writing this song in key? Because a lot of people say that they never learned theory, but they still write awesome music. And I think that that's perfectly fine. And I think I'm doing it the same way, just saying a different way. You just have names. Exactly. Yeah, you just have names for it. People will use their ears to find the notes they want. And I sort of skip that step is I already know what note I want. I can find it just by thinking of the key and what interval of the key I'm looking at, you know, what step. And the result is the same. I just feel like knowing it can speed up the process. There's less guesswork. You just already know what you're going for. You know what's interesting about that? So like there's something that comes from black metal, but like something that's theoretically wrong, but just sounds so cool which actually some soundtrack composers do, is like, for instance, just moving minor chords around. Like, it's not really in any key, really. That's not how keys work. They're, you know, just playing a minor chord and then up a minor third with a minor chord and then down a minor second with a minor chord. And it's just all minor chords. And it's wrong, theoretically, but it just sounds so evil and cool. Like, there's stuff like that that just your ear has to tell you that it's good and you need to trust your ear on it. Because if you do start checking that stuff, it is wrong. Yeah, I've done some stuff sort of like that before. I guess I'd call it chromatic stuff. The song that's a nail of the mix, Barren and Breathless Macrocosm, the opening riff is one of the only riffs Shadow Antenna's has ever had that's chromatic, where it's just a descending chromatic fourths and fifths that make up the riff. It's a great riff. Yeah, I was very stoked on it. And when I first made it, I just wanted to get it down because I liked the idea. But I thought this doesn't really fit in with what Shadow Intent does. But eventually I just made a song out of it because I really liked the riff and it turned into a very successful song for us. So I'm glad I, you know, stuck with it and did something unconventional. And it's hard to know how much of that I'll be doing in the future just because that did not come super naturally. Well, it came naturally to me. I actually heard it in my head when I was still working at a restaurant and I voice memoed it in my phone. I went outside a minute and then I went home and recorded it. That doesn't happen often. But yeah, usually I'll try to write in a specific key, but that riff is not in a specific key at all. And I wanted to make sure transitioning out of the riff to where the rest of the song is in a specific key that it sounded as natural as it could. Because, like I said earlier, I don't really do key changes. So that mentally was a battle for me, just making sure that when the riff comes back again, it sounds you know cohesive with the rest of the song. But yeah, like you said, people can hold themselves back and get in little traps. And I think the majority of successful musicians just say, just do what sounds good. Producers say that all the time for mixing. And yeah, I think your result matters more than if mentally you're afraid you're going out of key. Every once in a while, adding in those chromatic notes can be fun 
And it's a good way to break away from doing the same thing over and over. That's part of what having yeah. continuing a music career instead of having a short-lived music career is continuing to create great things. But, okay, I can't say... Because there's this group I really like called the Chainsmokers, and they kind of just do the same thing over and over and still have a lot of success off it. So I guess you don't necessarily need to change up your formula too much. If it works. Yeah, just make sure it sounds good. (laughs) So it's interesting to me that that riff almost didn't happen because it's such a sick riff. It's awesome. And I think it should serve as kind of like a a lesson to anybody listening who goes through this problem that uh, even a riff that sick, that voice in your head tried to stop it from happening. Like you've got this super sick riff and then it's like, is that what we do? Is it really like right for us? And all those kinds of weird questions that musicians ask themselves, but like that would have been a real shame. So how do you know? Like, how do you know when the voice is right about that? And how do you know when to tell it to shut the fuck up? Well, I guess a big part of my writing process, at least in the past few years, is make sure you write. I actually got this from Will Putney. I agree with it 100%. Is write more songs than you need for your record. Write twice as many or one and a half times as many. And then weed out the weakest songs. And that song, you know, I carried on with it. And there was a whole different version of the song with like five different riffs that I just completely redid into the version it is now. And I just really wanted that riff to make it onto the album and have a good song. So I like to refer to John Feldman. Hopefully you're all familiar. If you're not familiar with John Feldman, what are you doing? What I've been told his process with the bands at the studio is, I hope I'm not incorrect, is the band shows up and he says, give me your best parts, your best riffs. And then he disappears with them and comes back and says, here's your song. And (laughs) that says to me, the most important thing is those good parts. Get as many of those good parts as you can and flush it out into a well-structured song a little later. But even if I think having those good parts is is definitely more important than having the best structured song, definitely why not have both? But I wouldn't obsess over having a homogenized album where every song is perfectly structured and say, how can I have all the best parts? If you think of really cool parts, but you don't use them because your song doesn't come out in a formulaic structure like you usually do, then you may be missing out on opportunities because I think there's many, many, many successful songs that didn't follow the most conventional structure but had parts that really resonated with people. I think The Beatles is a great example. They just Oh yes. Especially maybe not so much in their earlier years, but as their career grew, they did a lot of experimentation and just thought of really cool parts that people remember and grew into the most legendary rock band, at least top five of all time. And they did that because they kept writing Tons of songs. They released like two albums a year or something crazy, but... Yeah, their whole career was like a seven-year span. Yeah, which is ridiculous. It is. When you think about the level of output and like how drastic their transformation was, 
and then realize it was only like seven or eight years. It's insanity. I don't know how they found time to tour with all those albums they released. Well, they stopped touring after a while. They only toured at the beginning. From what I read in Paul McCartney's autobiography, they felt like it was making them worse to tour because back then there was no good monitoring. They couldn't hear themselves on stage. Like The crowd was so fucking loud. They were getting worse, and they felt like it was getting in the way. So at one point, they just stopped touring. I think that's still true to this day, even with the monitoring, that if you spend more time touring than writing good songs that may have a bad net effect on your career. Obviously, touring is good for promotional, and it is arguably the best way to make money in music. But if you don't have the great songs and the great albums to back it up, then I think in the long term, it's better for some people to take time off from touring and just working on their music more. Well, I mean, look at some of the sickest metal bands of the past 20 years, like or most successful, say like a Meshuga or Opeth or, you know, those bands that are just like institutions at this point. When they tour, they tour. Like they definitely go for it. But then there are long, vast periods of no touring where they really do work on their stuff. Meshuga, it's even more drastic. Like it could be five years sometimes. I don't think that that would work for everybody though. <laughs> you gotta be in a very unique position to wait that long. But I, I completely agree with you. It's actually, I think that part of the sophomore album curse that bands experience is because they tour too much and then don't spend enough time crafting the next record. Contrary to what people may realize, it's fucking hard to do anything else when you're on tour. You could, you can, you can always do stuff, but especially something like writing in like a seriously creative focused way, it doesn't really fit with touring. Yeah, I definitely tried and I thought about it. I brought my whole setup with me on tour. Same here. And I just here. never came up with a good riff that I ended up using on an album. I, I tried. Maybe I could have tried harder. I said that to myself too, but man, it's just not a good environment for writing. It's not. Maybe if I was at Buster Bandwagon level, I at least would have more of a workstation. But lugging in, you know, your setup into a green room where everyone's trying to relax, someone invites you to get food or, you know, there's always something you can do. So I think I've pretty much given up on that and just try to focus on the touring and enjoy it. I wish I could write on tour. That would be amazing. But I think my brain just wasn't wired for that. And having my studio environment helps a lot more to get the stuff that I actually use. And I have, you know, written riffs and parts of songs on tour, and none of them have gotten used because I, I come home and I try to build off them, and they're just not as good as the things I start from scratch at home. So that's just how I do it. All my writing is done at home. I mean, I imagine that also on tour... You're, I mean, you're doing the business stuff too. So isn't your mind kind of on that a whole lot? Yeah, definitely. The last Shower and Ten headline tour, I did not have much time to myself because I was also just trying to network with all the bands, making sure everyone was happy. And 
we had a pretty extensive sound check setup, uh, just because it was our first tour, bringing lights with us and hanging up a big backdrop. And there was just a lot of stuff to do to get the stage the way we wanted it. And so it required a ton of attention. And then... Are you stage managing? I don't think anyone had a specific stage manager title. We all kind of split the duty. So our bass player, Andrew, set up the light rig, actually. I set up the in-ears and a lot of the audio stuff in the backdrop. And our front of house tour manager, Mike Torres, anyone who's lucky enough to know him, did a lot of the audio stuff as well. Kind of, I guess he would be the stage manager. Like, he decided when stuff would be striked, like the lights need to be pushed back for the support bands to have room, or whether there would be two drum kits or not, stuff like that. So I would call him the stage manager in that case. Let's talk about Shadow of Intent for a little bit. I wanted to pick your brain about this. If people don't know, now you'll find out that the band is indie, which is super impressive. Every once in a while you hear about bands doing it without a label and all that, but it's like, it's really actually pretty rare. Maybe it's a lot more common in rap, I believe, but it's a whole different world. Rap is kind of a genre that values entrepreneurs. That's like a mark of pride, whereas metal, not so much. It's kind of it's not the coolest thing in the world, even though I do believe that most successful bands have at least one entrepreneurial dude in them. Not having a label severely limits your access to opportunities in the metal world. Like it's it's really, really hard, yet you've pulled it off. So was it your strategy from the get-go to be indie? Do you feel like it held you back at all? So... As with most questions, the answer is yes and no. So at the beginning, by the time we released our first EP, I had already joined another band called Currents that I still play with today. That Currents was, you know, everyone involved, the full-time band, try to make it happen, get signed, get the manager, everything. And so... Do the thing. Exactly, do the thing. And so all my focus went towards that. And it was just me and the vocalist for Shaolin 10. It was our internet side project with zero expectations. But I knew that I wanted to do it because the vocalist is basically my favorite vocalist. He He's awesome. He checks all the boxes for me musically. And collaborating with him is like incredible. So I'm very glad, you know, I get to do something with him. And Currents eventually did get signed and we, you know, recorded our first album with Andrew Wade and got... But around that time, Shout Over in 10 had released an album and it was getting some attention on the internet, enough to, like, make it worth opening up a merch store, printing physical CDs, stuff like that. Because I was against that at first. I was like, no one cares about symphonic Demo Boy Gear 2008 Deathcore with cheesy synths and whatever. <laughs> I guess you're wrong about that. Yeah, people actually did like it. A lot of it was thanks to our vocalist just networking in Facebook groups. He just was kind to everyone, supported other people's groups, and would always share you know, our music. And that's how our following began, I think, was just... How did he do that without pissing people off? Because, man, people 
sharing their music with you when it's not invited is one of the most annoying behaviors that, like, I know this happens to you, but there's some people who hit me up literally every single day, a few times a day, now going on years, sending me their music. And I don't want to sound like an asshole, but it's like, it's overwhelming. And it's also not the way to start a relationship with somebody. Not at all. Yeah. It's like me, 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 me. It's like exactly so disrespectful. It can't be me, me, me. So number one rule is don't just direct message people, add people like my band. That is absolutely the wrong way. And that is not something we've ever condoned. Networking is you, you, you. Let's talk about you and always validate the other person's music and make them feel good about it. And then they're more willing to support your music. So he would post in groups, but he would also comment on other people's stuff saying, this is really good. He would post other people's stuff on his own profile and say, I'm not afraid of promoting other people. I like what you're doing. It's awesome that you like what I'm doing too, but we're not going around messaging people like my page, share my thing. That's not something we ever did, but it's about building a network, a community of people that like music. And that was like a small start, but what really, there's a bunch of small things we can put together, but he would make vocal videos and those would get lots of shares. There's one that has over a million views, like Facebook views. That's a lot for Facebook. Yeah, it's just like a 20-second video, but we got like thousands of Facebook likes just off that, just looking at, you know, at the analytics and the timing was because of that video. And there's, you know, a few videos that we ended up posting, but that was helpful. But yeah, the networking and just that stuff is important. But the number one thing is always word of mouth. So you can message or post all the people you want, but nothing is more powerful than someone who's not in the band enjoying it and then showing it to their friends and their friends showing their friends. And I think that's how I always found music is Same here. friends show me bands they like. And I don't think I found many bands by a label. I don't think... A label has made me aware of bands that often, like, I saw an Asking Alexandria CD in Hot Topic. Maybe I found them that way. But I think a friend actually told me about them before I saw their... Yeah, I was going to say, you had probably heard about them. Yeah, I don't think I needed their CD distributed to a CD store to find out who they were. There was one band I will say I, I found, Betraying the Martyrs, I... Went to Sumerian Records' website just to see who else was on the label. And I'm like, oh, I've heard of all these bands, but I've never heard of Betraying the Martyrs. So that's how I found that band. Yeah, but who does that besides somebody who's like... Exactly. Yeah, this is like you who's like actively trying to build a career. Who else goes to a label website to check out their roster? Exactly. So foundationally, I don't think... I found most bands because of a label. I think I found them because word of mouth. And just thinking with that mindset is what value is the label providing? And I think most people would agree the two biggest values are funding and marketing. So the first question is, do we need the funding? And because of word of mouth and the support we received and 
being able to record stuff on our own. Our first album, I recorded on my own. Shout out to Randy Pasquarella back when he was very affordable. He mixed our album for twelve fifty, I think. Damn, son. That is very affordable. Yeah, that was 10 tracks and super cool of him. And he's, you know, doing this full time now. Very successful. But that helped. So I just had to record the tracks and we sent it to him and we had an album. And then it's like 50 bucks to upload on a CD, baby. 50 bucks for cheap album artwork, stuff like that. All in all, at the beginning of our career, we invested no more then $2,000 into the career. And then from that, we haven't had any more out-of-pocket expenses. Everything has been paid for from that point by the support of the fans. So the initial investment was important because we didn't want to put something out that sounds like shit. Like, it has to be good if you want people to like it. And so definitely invest in it to some degree. But now, I don't think I would just invest a thousand dollars into a now money more like you know i believe in giving back to the fans if a lot of people are supporting it then try to keep making it better so the budget for like the videos and the recordings and mixing whatever is always increasing but the other value of the label is the marketing and that's the real trick is the label can put you in stores they can suggest you for tours they can just get you on playlists a little more easily, give you, like, take advantage of their subscribers. Yeah, it's access. That's the access I was talking about. Yeah, the press. There's a lot of stuff they do. And the first label offers we received were from smaller labels. I'm sure everyone can name a few small labels. I guess I believe, I don't know how to describe it, but you're kind of, your perception is by the company you keep. So... At least me personally, if I see a band on a really small label, I might not take that band as seriously as a band I see on a huge label getting major opportunities. Yeah, but then again, you're not signed at all, which is, like I said, it's pretty impressive. But if it's by the company you keep, don't you think that an unsigned band uh, might look smaller to the uninitiated than a band on a tiny label? That's possible. I guess I never looked at that way. I've seen signing to smaller labels as kind of settling and selling yourself short. Same here, <laughs> by the way. The financial thing, I am an economics major. Like I graduated in 2016 from University of Connecticut with economics. So that's kind of just how I look at everything is, you know, what kind of value would this provide for me? And this is where currents really played a big role in this is Currents got signed to a label and any band on their first record deal, you'll know you have a lot of money to recoup, so you're not really making a lot of money. And when you're on your first tours, Currents' first tours with Miss May I and Upon a Burning Body, we're getting 100 bucks a night. That's enough for gas and not enough to pay ourselves. We're not really making money, but Shadow Intense not giving money to anybody at this point. We're not playing any shows. We're just releasing music. We have a merch store up, music store up, and people are supporting. And I'm like, all right, well, this is making money. And if we sign to a label, that could go away. And I won't name drop them, but there was basically one label. We knew that we wanted to be on the only label that we would truly feel like we fit in. Finally sent us an offer. And it was, you know, a very fair nice offer but at that point 
it was just became a very financially stable thing and said, if we signed to a label, we could get bigger, we could get more opportunities, but the financial stability can go away. And the, the other thing is we just kept growing. If we had stopped growing, we would definitely be more open to it. But I think it was important to know your own worth and not sell yourself short. And even if some bands you know, said, oh, it's just an investment for the future. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Sign to a label is an investment in the future. They can open the doors and grow you into a bigger business. That's 100% true. And maybe it's not true that we'll never, ever sign to a label. Maybe we will hit a plateau. But that has not happened yet. All our metrics are continuing to grow with each album. And if we hit a point where they're not growing anymore, then I, you know, I'm more open to that kind of discussion. But as long as we're continuing to get the opportunities, anyone who follows the band knows we had a really, you know, good headlining tour, and we're about to do a tour next year with Asley Dying. That's, you know, hitting one to two thousand cab venues, which is the biggest tour I've ever done personally. So as long as that stuff is happening, I just ask, what would a label provide that we're not already getting? And the playlists are very important, Spotify playlists. I think a label would help us get on them for longer periods of time. But we're already getting on all the playlists that I would want to get on. There's one called Kick-Ass Metal that has a million followers that Baron and Breathless was on. There's New Metal Tracks, which is at like 400,000 followers that we've had a few tracks on. So everything that I would want from a label, I feel like we're already getting. So that is ultimately why there's no label involved at this time. The thing that I've always thought is you have to ask yourself and be very honest about what it is that they can do that you can't do. Uh, and that goes for publicists, managers, anything. And I think that what trips people up a lot is their egos in that they want the validation of being able to say that they're signed. They want the validation of being able to say that they've got some cool manager or something like that. They might not admit that. Same reason that a lot of bands get into buses before they're ready to really afford it. When If they just stayed in a van, they could actually come home with money. But they want that big dick energy, basically. Exactly. And that goes back to that label. Basically, our dream label, all the bands that inspired us are on this label. And we said we would literally only be doing this to look cool. That's the only reason why we would do it. Dude, that is such a horrible trade, if you think about it. Like, achieving financial stability in a band is, like, close to impossible in the first place. So to trade something that's close to impossible to achieve that you did achieve for basically an ego hand job, that's a major mistake, in my opinion. Right, and that's what it came down to. I think a label could make us bigger, especially that label, but what are you giving up to get it? Because I talk to a lot of bands, and they all have you know side hustles that they might not enjoy, like working at a restaurant, which I myself did, but being able to... Do music full-time, I think, is a very special thing. 
and Taurus giving that up isn't worth it to me just for, as you say, the ego hand job or just the risk of, you know, maybe getting bigger from the label. But I think at the same time, some bands sign the labels, what they do with the label doesn't work out and the label stops pushing them, but continues taking the royalty rate. Yes. <laughs> so the band no longer has control of their career. And when they put out albums and are at the mercy of when the label says it's okay to put out the album and that can set back financially too as if they've completed an album invest a lot into an album and then are just waiting around a year not able to tour or release it that happened to my band so we've been on roadrunner and century media and in between our first and second album after our first album we we're picking up a ton of momentum we had done like Ozfest, Europe twice, Japan, like all kinds of cool tours. We were like did like one US tour with Joffrey Cowboy and Acacia Strain when Joffrey Cowboy was like huge at the very beginning. Like we had all this momentum and we right away went and made a record that everybody thinks is our best record. However, label shit caused it to take a year and two months to be put out in between when we made it and that. And in those year and two months, we didn't tour because, you know, the booking agent didn't want to do it. That killed our momentum, basically. I have lived it. That is a very real thing. Yeah. I have this book. I think it's called What They Don't Tell You About the Music Industry. It was written by this guy that worked at a ma major label for many years. And one thing he says is momentum is a very real thing. So how I interpret that is that if you make people wait and you don't do anything... They forget you. But conversely, if you take advantage of your position and continue to build upon it, then there's an exponential effect. You grow faster than you would have if you had just done the same thing spaced out. So that goes back to coronaviruses. This is killing every band's momentum. My friends have this band, Fit for a King. I think many of the listeners are familiar. They're about to do... By far their most successful headliner to date. A lot of the dates had over a thousand tickets sold. Back when I toured with them last time, the shows were doing like 400, 500 tickets. So they're doing exponential rate, but now all those shows are canceled. They can't take advantage of it. Dance Gavin Dance, another huge band. They're about to do their biggest tour ever. I don't know those guys personally, but I know the shows they had were going to be enormous. And even just Shadow Intent, for example, As Lay Dying was going to be in a week. We were going to start that in a week from today. <laughs> nope. We are going to do European festivals like Summer Breeze and Brutal Assault and Rocks That, which are all bigger shows than I've ever played in my life. And then we had another tour lined up for November. Hopefully it'll still happen, but basically similar size to the Asley Dying tour. But if that gets pushed back, it might be more like summer. But the thing is, we wanted to headline again come March, but now that's when Asley Dying is going to be. And we wanted that headlining tour to, you know, be kind of like our momentum builder and just building our own value as a headliner. So that happened to a lot of bands and it's definitely... I don't think I phrase it this way, but everyone needs to remember it's not about them. Everyone's being affected. So I'm not <laughs> complaining because this is happening to everyone. So a lot of people worse than it's happening to me, but it's definitely a very 
unfortunate thing because a lot of bands have been building this momentum and now this is killing the momentum. Yeah, the thing though, and I, I think I'm an optimist slash realist, but in my opinion, the saving grace here is something you just said, which is that it's happening to everybody. So it's not like there's some bands that are continuing to do stuff and therefore take all the attention. It's happening to everybody at the same time, which means that it's kind of an even playing field. Now, I'm sure that there's going to be some bands who won't keep their momentum. In my opinion, that's because their momentum couldn't have been that strong. There's like a period where it hits critical mass kind of to where it starts growing itself. And you still have to push, but it kind of starts to take on a life of its own. I think bands, and it's hard to it's hard to say what that point is, but I think that bands who have gotten to that point will be fine. I think the bands who have momentum but have not got into that critical mass point, they're the ones that are going to have trouble. So like, for instance, I'm positive, I would put money on it, that Dance Gavin Dance is going to be perfectly okay, for instance. Yeah, they're just on a very safe level. I don't think their entire fan base is going to disappear by any means. No way. But maybe someone not quite at their level like us might be affected more. Because one thing you have to be careful of is the word hype. And I'm still trying to understand exactly what the word means but you have to separate what's temporary you know what people are interested in at the moment and what is you know gonna last so that's what i meant by the critical mass thing is like when it starts growing on its own outside of the artificial hype right so that's one thing i'm trying to nail down right with this band shadow intent is just i think the word deathcore is kind of a hype word, and metal is sort of like an eternal word. And I think there's not really a deathcore band that has reached, I guess, monumental heights, but it's always like the metal bands like your Lamb of God, Opeth, Gojira, whatever, that have, you know, transcended what's possible. So, but deathcore seems to be doing really well right now, and I just. You know, all of us are just making sure that we're not part of like a trend. We're part of something that's, you know, going to last. I will say this, man, and I'm sure you've heard this, but, and I'm not just trying to like make you feel better, but I have heard that as far as deathcore goes, like the word on the street is that you guys are like the torchbearers for the <laughs> new generation, basically. It's very kind of whoever said that. I mean, that's what people say. So I guess nobody knows what the future holds. And I know what you mean about what the word deathcore means versus what the word metal means. Uh, that's very astute observation. But I guess if you're going to be in any position, being considered that would be probably the most advantageous position to be in outside of being one of the like classics like Suicide Silence or something. Right. Yeah, that's... Suicide Silence was definitely in an unfortunate position with the vocalist change. I think a lot of people miss Mitch a lot. I, I'm i a big All Shall Perish fan, such as Awaken the Dreamers. I think Eddie's performance on that was great. Chris Story's guitar playing on that was great. I'd really like to see that band come back again. I think uh, they did the best thing they could have possibly done, given the situation. I've only really seen that one or two other times. Alice in Chains did it too. 
I don't know if you're a fan of theirs, but I'm not super familiar. Do they have the them bones song? Is that them? Yes, yes, that's them. Okay, uh, but you know they're. Their original vocalist died. I don't think I knew that. I should have known that. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, rock fans everywhere. Oh, uh, it's okay. So I'll tell you the story. He died of a heroin overdose in like 2000 or something like that. And uh, he had a super, super unique and uh, memorable and just iconic voice. The kind of voice that you can't really recreate it. And they disappeared, obviously, for like eight years. They came back with a new singer who basically, I mean, he doesn't sound identical, but he's really good. He not, And it doesn't seem like an imposter because, you know, sometimes when you get a vocalist to replace a vocalist who died or something, it kind of like there's an imposter thing going on. It doesn't have that vibe at all. The music they make with him sounds like them. He's got the right qualities for it, and it just worked. It's a rare, rare, rare thing to pull that off. Yeah, I know Dance Gavin Dance, definitely none of the vocalists sound alike, but they're doing better than ever with a new vocalist that sounds nothing like Johnny Craig. Yeah, that's a mind-blowing example, too. The imposter thing you mentioned, though, makes me think of Static X, if you're familiar. Oh, God. <laughs> oh man. They've been performing <laughs> with um, a new vocalist, but in every post I see, he makes it very clear that he's not trying to replace Wayne, and he's never going to be Wayne. And the future of the band is unclear, but he wants to do justice to what Wayne is doing. And I haven't really watched any videos or listened if there's any new recordings, but I do remember seeing that, that he's deliberately telling fans that he does not want to be viewed as an imposter and he just wants to do justice to the band however he can. So I don't know a lot about that, but that just made me think of that. Well, that is, that is a great example because uh, Wayne is someone that also would be impossible to actually replace yeah absolutely um i think acdc also made out okay i know yes i would, I would <laughs> agree with you on that one there's this band i don't know if it's the best example but it's interesting this band skid row i think they're pretty big in the 80s and their new vocalist was in dragon force of all band skid row now has dragon forces through the fire and flames vocalist really i had no idea <laughs> Yeah, for like 10 years, I think. He's been in the band a long time. And Dragon Force has like four new albums with their new vocalist. Because I, I was curious recently, I was like... So you're talking about the dude that looks like Pirates of the Caribbean? I think so. Okay. ZP Thart is his name, if that's how you yes, pronounce that it. Yes, that guy, okay. And I was like, huh, I wonder why he left Dragon Force. They're really good. And then, oh, that makes sense. Skid Row offer. Because... I haven't listened to the band a lot, but I've definitely heard their name a lot around like Motley Crue and Bon Jovi, the glam world. So I understand why he made that move because... I would say that Skid Row was like one level under those bands. Like, okay. They'd be the band that would direct support Guns N' Roses or something. That's still not bad. No, not bad at all. I still like Dragon Force's new vocalist, but he definitely does sound... Pretty different from the other one. But I like him in, you know, a different way. I think his choruses are really cool. But the first vocalist, ZP, had like a very epic, booming voice. And now that's sort of gone. But they have like really cool melodic choruses now. One thing that's interesting about that band, we toured with them in 2009. It was very interesting because there's such like controversy surrounding them. 
Yeah, the fake guitar. Yeah, that that was like a big controversial thing. Man, that was one of the best tours we ever did. Like they drew a lot of people and then it seemed like one month later he left the band and I was wondering what would happen to them cuz he's a really good front man for that kind of stuff. But it just seems like they've persevered and just kept going. You know, I think it's interesting to me when that happens to a band, when the fans give them shit for it. It's like, what do you expect them to do? You think that because somebody died or somebody left or whatever, that everybody else just has to stop? That's crazy. Right. That's something I really want people to think about. Suicide Sounds a great example is they lost someone very iconic, very influential that a lot of people look up to. And you have to look at all the other members of the band and say they've spent, you know, a good decade of their lives devoted to this, doing nothing but this, making this as good as it can be. Plus all the time before that. Yep, working up yeah. to it. And a horrible tragedy happens to them that they have no control out of. And then they make the decision, do we try to appease the fans that really love Mitch and just end it and set ourselves aside? Or do they say, we spent a lot of our whole lives building this into what it is. This is our livelihood. It's not fair that we have to throw it away because of something like this. And there's the argument, Mitch would have wanted them to continue. And maybe it's not the way everyone wanted them to continue. But, you know, it's their decision they've worked extremely hard to get where they are so i don't think it's ever fair to tell someone that they should have broken up because of something like that you know it's interesting to me i wonder if this happens in other genres i know metal right so that's the genre i can comment on the most i don't know if this happens in pop but i feel like there's a segment of metal fans that feel super entitled to tell the artists what they should or shouldn't do (laughs) with their careers. It's always kind of blown my mind why they think they have a say. And let me just say that I completely understand the concept of appreciating your fans and making them happy and all that. But uh, I feel like there, you know, there's a line that's got to be drawn. Like they don't get to decide what the artist makes and Imagine if they did. That's the stuff that metal fans hate about pop. Like they hate the idea of writing by committee or people uh, quote unquote selling out. That's like, you're not supposed to do that in metal, right? But then when fans expect the bands to do everything that they would have wanted them to do from like a kick sound to a vocalist change to a type of riff, wouldn't that be the same thing that they hate pop music for? Yeah, Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. 
Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix a song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low-end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Let's talk about Christian Donaldson. That mix is fucking awesome. Yes, he completely blew away all of our expectations. Completely. Yeah, and I've been familiar with him for a while. You know, he's one of those names that I've just heard about a lot. I guess I didn't realize how damn good he is until I checked that out. I was like, damn, this dude is like actually really fucking good. Yeah. So our decision making for who should mix the album went sort of like this. Buster, who you had on, mixed their second album. Who's also awesome. Yeah. And I think it came out really well, but it works very well for the metalcore deathcore stuff especially but basically one of the times i sent buster and buster is fantastic by the way but the way he kind of mixes i just thought it was funny is we had all these drum stems ready for currents and then he's like you can delete the close mics just give me the overheads in the rooms and that's what i would do too that's how i mix as well but i know that the drums are just not going to sound quite as real if you do it that way. Yeah, and he's got a very particular artistic vision for his mixes. Like, I consider him to be the most legit new schooler out there. Like, he is like what happens when you take that new school of like home studio metal mixer types, came up with samples and like all that stuff. He's like the best version. He's like that if, not if, but he's like the actually incredible version of that exactly like if shadow intent was slower and used seven strings stuff like that we would definitely use him again but we're you know trying to build like an authentic metal sound you know six strings very fast riffs not a ton of breakdowns so we wanted someone well-versed in metal so then we say okay what about colin richardson uh he's retired that's a shame because Colin Richardson is amazing. Jens Bogren was also at the very top of our list. And I think he would have potentially given us the clearest mix. But his you know, budget level is a bit higher. And again, his mixes are fantastic. But we do want something very 
you know, modern and punchy, and he has a bit more of the classic thing, which I did want. It's a little bit more like naturally classy kind of. Which is still very good. Like, I wouldn't be disappointed with a mix from him whatsoever. So then it was between Christian and Jacob Hansen. Jacob's also incredible. And Jacob Hansen was actually just a scheduling conflict. We were pretty much all set to go with him, but he was in the middle of a lot of label work at the time and said he simply just didn't have the time. And we were already planning to record the drums with Christian Donaldson. He had already done it. So like, all right, this makes the most sense. Let's hear the test mix from Christian Donaldson. Anthony Barone also recorded another project there called Beneath the Massacre. He did drums for their new album and said he's already familiar working with Christian Donaldson. So, okay, that kind of dynamic, I think, will ultimately improve our drum sound. So Christian Donaldson's in Canada. We're in Connecticut. I did hit up my friend Greg Thomas, who played guitar for Misery Signals. He lives about 30 minutes from my Connecticut house. And he, like, didn't quite have enough time to do it, but he was at the top of the list. And he didn't really work on death metal much. He did more of, like, hardcore stuff. Misery Signals, Shy Hula, those were his bands. That was his world. But he does get real, you know, good drum takes. So I said, all right, I just want to make sure we only have to do this once. And we get the best possible real drums we can. So Christian Nelson's going to do it. The reason I thought Christian Nelson would do a good mix is because of his work with this band called Ingested. They're from the UK. Anyone that hasn't heard them, definitely check it out. It's one of my favorite death metal mixes. The album The Architect of Extinction has a very punchy mix. And I'm like, I wouldn't mind having something like that. And obviously Beyond Creation, our vocalist, I, I like them a lot, but our vocalist especially likes how Beyond Creation sounds. So yeah, if our album sounds like that, then I'd be perfectly happy. So we got our first test mix back from him and the drums were instantly perfect. I don't think we changed a single thing about the drum tones. They're perfect. I think we like raised the kick slightly or something like that. But he nailed the drums instantly. And the only thing that we really had to go back and forth on were like the orchestra intricacies, making sure every little part. Any producer's work with the orchestra is probably familiar with a band wanting them louder. It's very hard to yes. get them <laughs> exactly right. And I'm the one writing those timestamp revisions saying I want it a certain way. But it's important to me because <laughs> a lot of work went into them. So I want to make sure you can... You're that guy. Yeah, exactly. And the vocals. The vocals took a lot of revisions because we were very particular of how we wanted them. You know, you have to kind of, what do you call it, high-pass vocals. But if you are too aggressive with it, then a vocalist like the one we have might not sound as powerful. So they have to be EQ just right. And then my vocals also just were very difficult because he doesn't do a lot of singing. So maybe he was a little less familiar, but I wanted, you know, something kind of ambient, but kind of aggressive and that all had to be dialed in. But ultimately, we're definitely using him again. Like we're so stoked with how it came out. I can't imagine someone else mixing the album after that. I think... Everything we ever wanted, basically the way I put it is, we're stupid for ever using anyone before you. That's how I put it. That's quite the compliment. I want to talk about your perspective as an artist, because, you know, we have a lot of producers on here, so we get their perspective on it. You were just talking about how you chose Christian, but uh, 
on a deeper sense, what is it that makes you even consider a producer or a mixer in the first place? I'm asking because, uh, you know, a lot of people who listen are, they want to get better bands. They want to figure out how to crack that code. Like, how do you discover a producer and what makes you think, yeah, I could work with this dude and what research do you do? Like, what do you find out? That's such a funny question that no one's asked me, but I'm so glad you asked. And again, not everyone's going to have the same preferences that I do. I think mix, mixing is a taste thing, but I feel like a lot of people might want the same thing as I do. And number one, does it punch you in the face? Is it 3D? And what does that mean? It's hard to put into words, but it's kind of like every time there's a breakdown or an impact, stuff like that, can you feel it? Do you like feel the change in like the mix or does it fall flat? And that's something I look for when I go through a portfolio is when something happens, is it punchy? Does it impact me or does it does nothing happen? Do I think, oh, that would have been so much cooler if they'd, you know, mixed it differently? So that's one thing I look at. And if you listen to Christian's album, The Architect of Extinction by Ingested, you'll hear what I mean. It has that every time something drops out, comes back in, or there's a cymbal choke. A lot of it is in the kick drum, I feel like, but also in your automation but just making sure you're pushing those parts right way so that they're punching you in the face every time they happen. That's super important to me, and I think that grabs people's attention, grabs my attention, makes you want to replay it, makes you want to blast it on your nice speakers. Number two, I personally go for more of a clear, polished thing. I don't know if I've watched too many Joy Sturgis videos or have too many Joy Sturgis products or whatever it is, but for some reason that's just always been my approach. Can everything be as perfect and polished as it can be, but can it still sound heavy? Because that's something I thought about more. That's what Joey is the master of. Exactly. For instance, the high cut on your guitars is that I was making my high cut down to like 7K on my or 8K, something like that on my pre-productions. I was like, yeah, I got rid of all that horrible fuzz that was clouding up. But now that I listen more, I'm like, well, if you get rid of all of that, then it just doesn't sound heavy anymore. So you really have to find a sweet spot. And Jeff Dunn, who maybe you've had on here. We have. Jeff's great. Told me, oh, yeah, man, I do 12K. So I'm like, oh, okay. So now I do 12K because Jeff is one of the best mixers I know. I wouldn't be dissatisfied with a mix from him either. He's right up there for me with Christian. He's a protege of Joey's, by the way. Jeff is? Yeah. I know he worked with Dave Otero as well. Jeff's worked with a lot of people, but his start came with Joey. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I know he had a lot of drum editing credits, but now he's just a beast mixer. Really cool to see his journey, even though I've only been a part of it for the past year. But anyway... Another thing I look for is, you know, the clarity. And that's sort of like a difficult thing to define is can you hear everything? And it's like, yeah, I guess even if you can hear everything, it doesn't mean that it sounds good or cohesive. Yeah, there's this thing that happens on metal mixes sometimes where you can hear everything, but I call it drums in space. It sounds like a bunch of different elements that are like separated like you can't close your eyes and imagine like 
a drummer beating the shit out of the drums. You can't imagine like a band. It just sounds like separated elements. I hate that. And that's very hard for people to nail and conceptualize and understand. I think a lot of it comes down, this is super important. I should have had this with Punch, is just getting your low end right. If I am blasting a song on my car speakers and it doesn't make a bump, I guess people call it car test, then it's like, I feel ripped off by the band. I feel like they did not <laughs> deliver. If the low end is not there, if the kick drum is not punching through and the bass isn't filling everything out. It's funny you say that because I used to call the best metal mixes uh, car test music. Yeah, exactly. And the funny thing is, is that if you listen to Metallica, Black Album, Enter Sandman, one of the greatest albums, doesn't do that at all. That's not what it does. The kick drum and the bass do not... I mean, the toms at the beginning are pretty boomy. That's, But it doesn't really give the modern feel. So even though that's indisputably a great mix, it's not something that I would personally want to put out in 2020 for what I'm going for. And the fact, even like Mashuga, Opeth, they don't really have that type of mix either. It's not really a punch. That's not really what they're going for. That's why I think not everyone's going to want the same thing that I want. Yeah, so you're. So it sounds to me like you want clarity but power. So with Opeth, I think it's like more clarity, vibe, and class. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like your aesthetic is more like clarity, sheen, but impact and power. Exactly. And I really like a lot of Joey's... I guess they're towards the end of his career. He did the I See Stars, New Demons. I think that has a lot of what I'm talking about, like the power. Oh, About That Life by Attila had a very, very clear, very powerful... I feel I can't prove this at all. I'm probably wrong, but I feel like that album created a big trend in bass tone for people. I feel like that album made people want to hear a clanky high end. That and Guilty Pleasure, too. Exactly. Like Even though no one will admit they like the band, I feel like those albums really made people say, oh, I like how you can hear the bass, like the high end of the bass poking through everything. It's funny you're saying this because I was just talking to Joey and Joel yesterday night about the Attila mixes, and Joey was telling me that mixers still hit him up today to say that those mixes are part of their like go-to references. I think everyone listening will think I'm insane for saying this, but I do genuinely think those Attila albums influenced a lot of people how to mix their bass tone because of how the high end pokes through and it kind of changed how people mix bass in that style. And just saying it out loud makes me sound insane. It's like, who would want to sound like Attila? But I, I swear, I think... Ever since hearing those albums, I started paying attention to like the high end and bass a lot more after that. Dude, it's like the Nickelback mixes. So many people yeah. hate on that band, but their mixes are like game changers, basically. Anybody who mixes knows that the Nickelback mixes are like the top of the top yeah, of the top. exactly. So I don't actually necessarily prefer my bass and my mixes like that. I don't hate it, but... I think if it doesn't sound like that, I don't really care. I see the bass as just making sure the guitar sounds good. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of schools of thought of like what percent. 
Because I guess one thing I think of is I don't want the guitar to be too thin because there's those parts where the guitar is by itself and then with like no bass or drums under it. And I don't want to hear just the complete high pass the shit thin guitar. Sometimes it's cool. Like on volumes via, it's kind of like that, but it kind of works. But on like a heavy album, if the guitar is on its own, Hostage by Chelsea Green is a great example. It sounds super thick. Sounds like it doesn't need the bass to sound heavy. It's like already sounds heavy. I guess you could automate parts like that to add the low end back into the guitars or however you want to do it. But I don't think I ever want to feel like my guitar is weak and thin. And sometimes it comes out sort of like that because I, I'm not sure your thoughts on this, but is that like a new, is that more what people are doing these days is they're trying to get more of the guitar power from the bass than they used to back in the day? It depends on the tuning, I think. Okay. The tuning plays a huge factor in that because when you have guitars that are tuned down to like E, it kind of changes the rules of the game a little bit. Like back in the day, low tuned guitars are like drop C, you know, that's not that low. So there's still room for like a thunderous bass. So... It's kind of, these days, it's more about making a decision, like making a strategic decision about what's going to inhabit that low end. It could be the guitar and sound massive. It could be the bass. And it changes from mixer to mixer and genre to genre of heavy music. Whereas before, it was more like, this is just how you do things because guitars go down to this and they won't properly fill in the subs. Now they do. And so... You have to make that decision. That's funny you say drop E. So Currents actually does play in drop E. And every record I've done with Currents, I've used MIDI bass. Mm -hmm. That's very common, by the way. And I think it really fills it out better than real bass could have. But for Shadow of Intent, the first two albums were MIDI bass, but Melancholy and I think every album after Melancholy from now on, I'm going to keep using real bass. I think once you're above drop A or so... You probably should use real bass just because you can and it's easy. Definitely drop C or above, I would say. Like, I think the higher tune you are, the more obvious MIDI bass can be. Oh, yes, absolutely. Also, I mean, the lower you go, the harder it is to get a bass to even sound like anything. I mean, you can do it. I've done it. It becomes like a serious technical challenge to just get it to sound like an instrument and then it becomes also very difficult to just when tracking it or whatever to just differentiate what's going on like it becomes a lot harder to hear the actual note so like simple things that no producer should ever fuck up like having the bass and the rhythm guitar a half step apart that kind of stuff starts to become a more likely mistake just because it's so hard to hear it and I know that some people are experts at hearing it, but that that is some of the challenges. Just getting it to stay in tune. So you have to tune the shit out of it, getting it to not just sound like flappy garbage. Like There's a lot of challenges to tracking a real bass that low. Exactly. And so some people might call it laziness that I just don't want to deal with all that bass. And I just want a MIDI bass that I know is going to have the exact results I want without any of that. People who would call it laziness are assholes. Right. Fuck them. I don't actually own a bass. I own like that Fender Jazz, their four string. And 
I don't actually use that on records. So for Melancholy, I borrowed my friend. Shout out to Kevin Zito. He has an Ernie Ball Stingray. Very bright and clanky. Very cool. I use that bass on Melancholy. It's like a two or $3,000 bass. Some, something stupid like that. And I just wanted to make sure I had an awesome sounding instrument for the bass since it's my first album not using MIDI bass. I've used MIDI bass on every album up to that one. Um, so I wanted to make sure it was awesome. And it was pretty easy. I just got a four-string pack, or maybe it was five, and I took out the high one, I forget. Because Shadow of Intent, that album, half were in drop A sharp, and the other half were in B. And the 10-minute instrumental was in C sharp standard, which is like drop B, but without the drop B. So... But the bass, I knocked out each song in like a half hour to an hour, got everything edited. It was very easy to get good results with that bass. And I was actually pretty pleased with myself because I had never done real bass before. So just to have done it like that for my first time and done it so quickly and gotten it edited so quickly was really cool. It does help that you don't have to double track and get exact doubles that <laughs> match each other. Yeah, You just have a single and... But as a little extra string noise, you're like, oh, that's just personality. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so you're saying that how the bass hits is a huge factor in choosing the mixer. What about the word of mouth aspect to the mixer? Like, do you talk to other bands and find out what kind of person? I don't do that. But yeah, as far as the experience, I guess price does matter. I don't have unlimited money. I do want someone with a reasonable price. But I think number one... This kind of combines everything anyways. The portfolio is, even if they have an album I like, could they do that again? I don't know. Dude, that's a very good question. Did they get lucky? That's a question I ask. It's like, yeah, your mix sounds great, but do you have anything else in your portfolio? Because I think anyone that chooses a mixer just because they have one album they like is taking a risk. Yeah, you know, because it could have been that the producer sent them something immaculate that they barely had to touch that happens there's also the inverse of that yeah where the band does a lot of legwork they have their guitar tones already reamped they have drum samples already picked out you can still fuck that up but also the opposite of that is when you have a mixer that's really good and then they put out like a shitter you can't judge them by that either because maybe they were given something like a complete mess to salvage that is a tricky thing, so I won't shout this guy out by name. Yeah, no names. I respect his work a lot. He's one of the biggest influences in my entire life. Like, I look up to him a lot. But he has a lot of albums out that I really don't like the sound of at all. And a lot of albums out that I love that I think are the best. And I'm not going to use him because I think that's a risk. Especially because he's not particularly inexpensive either. I'd be investing a lot of money in a mix that I very well couldn't, might not like because there's a lot of stuff in his track record that I don't like. I will say this though, it's important to understand, which would be kind of impossible to find out without talking to everybody behind every one of those projects. It's like, what if those ones you don't like were when he had to salvage a total piece of shit? And then the ones you do like, for instance, are ones that he produced from the ground up 
Because I know that he produced them from the ground up too. Okay, all right, and there you go. He was not <laughs> sent stems from somewhere else. The band was in in the studio with him, and it still did not come out. All right, well then that is an accurate risk assessment. Right, right, and it's a shame because I really do genuinely like lots and lots of his mixes, but I would rather feel safe. And I would say him and Christian are pretty on par for me, but Christian, you know, offered a better price. And I also believe that Christian, there, there's one thing you have to look out of is, is the producer trying to get you out the door and get your shit done? Does the project matter a lot to him? That's something you have to look out for. And some producers, it doesn't matter. They're just so good. Even if they don't care at all, it'll sound great because they're just that good. But this is more for tracking than for mixing, I think. But there are those times where if a producer doesn't care about the project. They'll just try to get you out the door and not give as much of their input as they could. And some of that is just because the producer just doesn't vibe with the music and maybe they weren't the best fit. So they're like, I don't really know what I can contribute to this that I would do better than the artist is already doing for what they're trying to achieve. That happens to me. Every once in a while, a band will come in. I really don't understand what they're going for. So I don't have any input for them because anything I would do would maybe homogenize it and turn it into something that they're not really going for. Yeah, just not on the same page. So I'm like, all right, I'm just engineering this, getting good takes. And sometimes bands don't even want the good takes they want. The imperfect takes. So I'm like, all right, well, now I feel even less qualified for this job. I should, maybe someone else sh- should have done it, which sucks to like give up work. Brian Hood and Chris Graham will talk about this on their podcast is make sure if you accept the job that you're the right guy for the job, because then if you put out something that you're not stoked on and the band's not stoked on, that is negative points on your portfolio the band will say, oh, don't use him. This came out like shit. If your credits come out online with your name on it and it doesn't sound great, people are like, oh, maybe we won't use him. His latest, Because that's another thing is even if you put out good stuff back in the day, I think a history teacher would say this is, what have you done for me lately? And basically that means is it doesn't matter what you've done in the past that matters is the stuff you're putting out today still good and still sound like it has care? And I think some producers change their approach over time. Maybe when change analog, digital, whatever, started using new amps or drum samples or mastering chain or whatever. Get married, have kids, don't care anymore. Like Exactly. It's a number of factors. And the stuff just has a different flavor now. And suddenly they might not be the right guy for the job anymore, but they would have been back in the day. And so... That's stuff I look for, but the portfolio is definitely important. And can you see that this producer is consistently putting out stuff that you like and similar conditions being like, did this producer record the stuff himself, reamped, MIDI drums, whatever. And I think if you DI your guitars with new strings, good pickups, and everything else is MIDI, then any modern producer should probably be able to make that sound good, unless they genuinely don't work with MIDI drums and bass. There are those. Yes, there are. I had worked with one recently, and I was like, oh, I probably should have researched that further, because I guess 
just the way I work. I assume how everyone uses MIDI drums and bass now. At least I assumed everyone that's like newer and younger and I don't know. Man, that's an interesting topic because uh, I want to bring up something else, but let me just say this real quick. The MIDI drums and bass, you know it's a controversial topic. One of the things at URM that like we value ourselves on is showing people what really makes a difference out there, like what will actually get you hired these days, what you're going to actually encounter. And while I think that nothing sounds better than like a sick drummer in a sick room with a sick producer, like with a sick set, like perfectly tuned, like that's the most ideal, obviously. However, that's not what you're going to get a lot of the time. That's like, that's a dream situation. Most of, if you're a mixer working for rock and metal bands, you better be ready for programmed material at least 50% of the time. And if you don't know how to work with it, I'm not saying you have to love it, right? Honestly, I feel like it's kind of weird to work with programmed drums compared to real drums. But you should be comfortable with it because you're going to encounter it. And what, are you going to turn down those bands? You're going to be turning down a whole lot of bands and I get it if like your artistic vision is not that at all. And like you said, you got to vibe with the project. If that's not you, fine. Should at least find out if it's you or not. I want to bring up something that you said earlier. This whole thing about the producer actually caring. I feel like that right there is a lesson about the entire music industry and everybody you work with. Because you could get a big time manager, for instance, and if you're the smallest artist on their roster, they could have the most power out of anybody. If you don't matter to them, you don't matter. You could be on a major label. And if the staff doesn't care, it's not going to make a difference for you. You could be with the biggest producer ever. And if it's just like a money job to them and they have like their intern do it, then you're not really working with that producer in the way that you had hoped. I think... Is same with booking agents. I've had this happen. We had a really big booking agent, but we were not the band that he really cared about. Got us like no good tours. We had someone before that who was smaller. He cared and he got us awesome tours. So I think that that is kind of something that you have to look at throughout your entire career. You got to be looking at everybody you work with in terms of two-way street relationship. Not Again, not make choices with your ego like... I want this manager because it's going to make us look good. I want this producer because all the cool bands go with that guy. That stuff doesn't matter in the end. What matters is what everyone is going to actually bring to the table. Yeah, that's very true. A label 100% has the ability to take all the rights to your music. Sure, they invest a little money into it, but they can take it. And then if a release doesn't go the way they want it, they are 100% allowed to just... Not do anything. <laughs> yeah, take your royalties and you would have netted more money if you just didn't use the label. But I understand it is like a risk you have to take and a possible investment is, oh, we should at least try because maybe it will happen. So why wouldn't we at least try? And I totally understand the argument. Maybe I'm, what do you call it, risk averse. I don't like those kinds of risks, especially if I see that I have a good amount of borrowing power already. Maybe some risks aren't worth it. And I could be wrong. There, I've had 
you know, recently a manager tell me that we should be on a label and we'd be way bigger if we were. And I'm like, I believe you. How does he know? Yeah, I mean, he's pretty smart. Like, Sure, but how does he know? He might be smart, but he's not psychic. Yeah, exactly. That's like people who think they can predict the stock market or something. It's like, you know that you can't actually predict the stock market. There's no tool out there. Lots of smart people have tried, but nobody actually knows. Like maybe there's a few people that like have a sixth sense for it, like Warren Buffett or something, but like no one can actually predict that shit. Same way that you can't actually predict if a band's going to do well. Every A&R guy who has had like a bunch of big hits has like a multiple higher amount of failures that they thought were going to be big. And I can't tell you that a producers, this has happened to me and a bunch of producers I know too. You work with a band and they check off all the boxes. You're sure that it's going to hit. And then it comes out and nobody fucking cares. And then you work with a band that you think is total shit. Like they're basically a glorified local band. And then it hits the Billboard Top 20. And like you couldn't have predicted it. I would go with your gut because uh, he's probably just trying to get your business. It could be. But back to the the caring of a producer, there's also the other inverse of that is they care a lot, but they're not necessarily that good. So (laughs) one guy (laughs) that really wanted to mix our second album said he gave us like a test mix and said, I'll change anything you want. We'll get everything exactly the way you want it, as many revisions as you want. And I'm like, I don't really want to do that. I want you to be awesome at your job, get it awesome the first time, and then if I want changes, we'll make that happen. But I want the first mix to be awesome. And also this guy just didn't have like the portfolio. So it's like, I'm sorry, but I'm not gonna give you that chance. Like, it's very kind of you to take time out of your day to make a test mix. Never take that for granted. It's really cool that people do that. But if you don't have the portfolio, don't expect to get the work. And that goes back to, well, how am I ever going to get work if I don't have the portfolio? And it's like, how are you ever going to get signed if you don't have fans? How are you going to get fans if you're not signed? That that type of thing. And it's really just a building process. Is This is the first year in the studio world I'm finally getting, like, not like massive clients, but at least like label label clients and that's really cool for me but it took years and years of local bands and getting better at actually mixing and hopefully you know keep building the portfolio get better and better mixes out and people will take notice i don't know joey's full story but from what i understand he started in a garage and his first band was devil wears prada Uh, i believe that's the case which is a sick first band to have. <laughs> that is such an anomaly, though. Yeah. Like, Joey had a very skyrocketed career, from what I can tell. He just- or Andrew with a day to remember. Like, that kind of stuff doesn't happen very often. I always tell people that, like, especially URM students, they hear these stories with these people that come on the podcast like that and or on Nail the Mix. And it's like, because those are the types of people we have, sometimes people can get the wrong idea and start to think that that's the norm. The people we have are 90% anomalies. Like, yeah, their stories are not how it normally goes down. But I mean, 
Obviously, they're the ones we're going to have on, but there are plenty of people who didn't do it that way. There are plenty of people, more people who built careers little by little. With the chicken and the egg thing that you just brought up, I do think that there's an answer to that. Like, you know, how do you get fans without a label? How do you get a label without fans? So how do you get bands without a portfolio? How do you get a portfolio without bands? All that stuff. I think the answer to that is you do an inventory of any opportunity or skill or asset that you have. You do something with that like now, the best possible thing you can. So you just take what you have available to you. Exactly. And you do the best possible thing and you use that to maybe move one foot closer to the, you know, to the end zone. But, and then you do that long enough, eventually those steps start to be become more meaningful. But like, it all starts with taking one little thing, whatever it might be, and uh, basically optimizing the fuck out of it. You just go from there. Like, my start was just $10 an hour, I'll record your band, that's, that's it, no matter who you are. And it went, okay, Chris records bands now. It's really cheap. We can at least get a recording, send it out to get mixed by someone. And then that creates word of mouth. More people are aware that I record bands. So then that, you know, increases to more people coming in. Then I get more experience just doing it. I get better at it. And so Mm -hmm. getting better at it increases my value, what I can ask for the job, and increases what the portfolio sounds like. I think everyone listening, I'm sure, hopefully already knows this, but I think the portfolio is everything. I think you should never expect to get anything out of life if you don't have the portfolio. Or at least don't expect to get paid for it. But honestly, at a higher level, don't expect people to even give you a chance. You're not even going to get like considered if you don't. Right. If I email Lamb of God and say, hey, let me do a test mix, they'll be like, they, they, well, they probably just wouldn't even say anything. But they're like, sure. And then maybe they're like, sounds cool, man. And then that'll be the end of it. It's like, <laughs> yeah, there's like steps, you know, steps you have to go through and you have to understand that people, like you can't just have the world handed to you. But one thing that I'm reluctant to talk about on podcasts and interviews that I don't think I have yet. But the more I think about it, I think it, it there is some truth to it. Is Luck is a factor. Fuck yeah. I would love to say that everything I've done is because of my hard work and only because of that. But just thinking about how everything happened is just... I wish that was true, but there is luck involved. I was... Absolutely. Like, show and ten this Esley Dong tour. It's like the biggest tour I've ever got to do, but... I, you know, randomly was, when Kearns was with Asley Dying, I randomly, like, talked to Josh for a few minutes, mentioned Shower and Ten, and then he randomly heard Shower and Ten on a playlist and remembered it and messaged me. Then I randomly went to Las Vegas at the URM Summit, and he was there, and he talked about the tour, and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then... So wait, so we helped you guys get that? Maybe, yeah. Fuck yeah. Who know who knows? <laughs> At least one one step like one one brick in the wall, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. So I love Brian Hood's uh term, uh single point of failure. I, you've you've had Brian Hood on at some point, I yeah, assume. A few times. A few times, great. So 
if he's ever talked about that. Smart guy. Yeah, I love his podcast. Did you see him at the summit? He was hanging out. Yeah, I met him. It was hard just because you know the term Punisher. I felt... You felt like a Punisher? I just didn't know what to say just because I listened to like 100, 100 episodes of his podcast. Then I finally see him in person like, oh, I just wanted to meet you that... I didn't know what to say, but it was really cool just to, you know, meet him because I really think he's really smart and good at his job. But single point of failure is just everything can be perfect, but if there's one little link missing, then everything goes to shit. So an example he used is just you have a great band and a good mixer, but if like there's a huge buzz going through your interface or preamp the whole time the recording is it's like completely unusable and all the steps were there but one there's like that one little ingredient that was just wrong the pickups were dead exactly it's like oh i did a whole album of guitars but there's no audio because the pickups were dead stuff like that and the same as with a band is if i remember correctly i could be thinking of the wrong band but i'm definitely thinking of the wrong band so we'll just pretend i think it was Jamie Josta watched Amir live in Connecticut and then got them signed or something like that. It's probably not that, but something like that. Like he was there and he was watching, he was paying attention and he made something happen for them. And maybe something would have happened for them anyway because they were a good band. But you never know. Sometimes people will talk about they need an agent, they need a label, they need a manager. What you need is someone that's interested in you that has like a position to do something about it. It doesn't matter if they're a label, a manager, or an agent. If they have some pull and they're interested in you, that's what you need. It doesn't matter if it's specifically an agent or specifically a label or an agent. I, I think of those as the big three, like as a band's team. And Shadow Intent, perfect example is we never went with a manager or a label, but we were never afraid of getting an agent. So our first agent was this guy, JJ. He represented Oceano and Spite and some other bands. And he was on the company with Dan Rosenblum, who represented Carnifex and used to represent Black Tally Murder and Whitechapel. TKO, right? The company was, is now called 33 and West, but it used to be... Oh, Circle Talent. That's what it is. And so we didn't need a manager or a label for our first tour to be with Carnifex and Oceano. Or our second tour would to be Black Dollar Murder, White Chapel, Flesh God. We just needed the agent to represent us and legitimize us. And that is how we, you know, established ourselves as a touring band. Is like, we're not going to settle for our first tour. We want it to be really special with bands that we really look up to. So we didn't play shows for years. And then we finally had enough internet hype, I guess is the word. Hype will say, you know, he became interested in the band and thought we would bring value to those tours. So, you know, Black Jolly Murder Whitechapel, our first full U.S. tour ever, we were playing Thousand Cap Rooms every night, which is, I'd like to say, because of just hard work and strategy, but I think luck is involved. The luck part is that you meet the right person when they're in the right frame of mind to give a shit, like stuff like that, that like, you know... That one person who introduces you to that other person, that like you cross paths when the conditions are right. That's the stuff that you don't have any control over and it's super important. Why do you not like talking about luck? Is it because like you kind of make your own luck? Yeah, I feel like it 
discredits work I've done, but at the same time, it's like you just can't deny it. Like, but I one thing I will say, it matters. Yeah, <laughs> it really does. One thing I will say though is I do believe this is a, another term I like. Set yourself up for success, which means you're not necessarily winning yet, but you're doing all the steps to make yourself valuable and approachable. So you just have like an image down, a sound down, whatever, instead of waiting. Like I hate, 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 hate when a band doesn't try, but they expect like a manager or a label and it's like, why don't you focus on being as good as you can be first and then just do that. And then maybe someday the right person will come along, but don't reverse the process. Don't expect them to do all the work for you, I think. I think the thing with luck, you have to set yourself up to be in a position to make the best of it. So I don't think that the luck is what actually happens. The luck is like the connection or something. But then if you're not ready for that connection to do anything, what difference does it make? Me getting signed to Roadrunner is totally luck, even though it's also a ton of hard work. The part of it that was luck is that there was a magazine in my region that was like just like a local, well, regional magazine that uh, I'd spend like $500 a month advertising my band in it, which was a lot more than any of the other unsigned bands. So I got to know the staff because uh, I kept placing ads for like a year. Then they interviewed a producer. That producer was above our level and they introduced us because they liked me because of that. By meeting that guy, that guy got us in touch with Roadrunner. So it's like one of these things where when placing the ads in that magazine and building that relationship, I had no way of knowing that that's how I was going to get to Roadrunner. But so there's the luck is that those people from the magazine even met that other producer in the first place, right? Like that's totally out of my control. And there's no telling that Roadrunner would have happened without that, right? Right, exactly. I think that, and that's networking. So URM Summit, for example, I could have gone, attended the classes, and then just stayed in my hotel room the whole time. And I think the classes were cool. I took some cool notes and learned some cool concepts, but ultimately it was a networking event. And Yeah, that's what it's about. To go there and to not meet people is a disservice to yourself. It's a waste of your time. So I'm sorry to Dave Otero, but I did not make the second half of your guitar course because, well, basically, I spent a lot of time with Jeff Dunn there. I had met Jeff once before that, but after that, to me, Jeff is just an incredibly talented mixer, and you know I've learned a lot from him in the time I've known him, and we saw... Some of the bands he's had in Ice Nine Kills and Fit for a King were playing at Brooklyn Bowl, which was like two blocks down from the hotel. So I had done a few tours with Fit for a King. So I wanted... It's it's so weird that that lined up that way, that Fit for a King and Ice Nine Kills were playing two blocks away from the URM Summit. So I was like, this is kind of a good networker opportunity too. It was really cool. Jeff will hit me up every once in a while. I'll ask him about mixing every once in a while. And it was cool to make that connection. I think Jeff has made me way better at mixing and is just like an awesome person to know. And you really can't just meet people and expect to benefit off them. You should really, this is just like that book, How to 
when friends influence people, the one Brian Hood will talk about a lot is should never be about you and what you can get from someone. It should be not what can I do for you, but you can't just talk about yourself all the time. No one wants that around. So if you are going to network with people, you know, learn about them. And if you just focus on what they can do for you, then don't expect anything. Just networking is like should be like a lifelong long term situation like you shouldn't expect to get a quick thing for a person here, quick thing for a person here. You should say, I will help you however you want. And if you want to help me, that's fine. But if not, it's awesome to know you and be an acquaintance of yours, you know? I call it open-ended networking. And I think it's the best way to do it to where all you're trying to do is build a relationship. And the relationship's going to go where it's going to go. Um, maybe it'll equal a professional opportunity. Maybe it just turns into a friend. Maybe it goes nowhere. But people can sense when you're trying to dig something out of them. And that is, a, I think, especially in the music industry, because it's so relationship-driven and there's so many punishers, especially people at pro levels, are they're very wary of that. And it turns them off so fast. It's a quick way to kill anything. And so, yeah, obviously... You're networking because you want good stuff to happen, but that's got to be a byproduct of the relationship that you're building. Exactly. This is awful, but I made a collage of this guy who's asked me for guest lists on like five different occasions. I oh just man, made, please send it to me. I will. And I, I just made like a little collage <laughs> and it just, yeah, you just can't, I don't know. I think I used to be like that though. I didn't realize like you can't just look to benefit off people all the time there's nothing wrong with trying to be in a position to help people. And it costs so little to help people sometimes. You can't make it about you. The thing, though, too, is the danger there is when people try to be too helpful and you can tell that it's because they're hoping that you do something for them. So it's a thing where, like, for real, when I meet people now, I make a point of clearing my head of, like, anything that could happen. And I just try to meet them uh, and see where the conversation goes um, and try to f try to take a genuine interest in who they are. I feel like that has served me best. The best stuff that's ever happened to me, career growth-wise, has been with relationships that are years old, always. Like, it's never just someone you meet at NAM and then one month later, this huge project is happening. It's like someone I meet at NAM, and then I see them six months later at some place and then like chat online sometimes and then three years go by and then for some reason there's something that you can do together and you know each other and so you've got a good rapport and they're going to take your email or answer your call. But like you can't, you can't predict that shit. Ever. Exactly. Miami Dolphin, who works... I love Miami. So, actually, before I continue, I've been meaning to ask someone this for, like, years now. What is the difference between URM and Nail the Mix? I'm still trying to understand. Uh, Nail the Mix is just a product of URM. Okay, that's all it is? Yeah. I knew it was obvious. I just wanted to make sure I was correct. URM's the company. We have lots of products. Nail the Mix is the product that we're most well known for. Okay. It's like our flagship, but that's all it is. Is Joey a URM like owner with you or are you like Yes. Okay. He's one of my one of my co-owners. Great. I should have known. I just needed to be sure. That's okay. Um 
So Miami, I was in a band with, if anyone doesn't know, everyone needs to meet Miami Dolphin, called The Words We Use about six years ago. Wait, wait, so you know him from Connecticut? Yep. Oh, wow. So Miami is one of my favorite people, by the way. Yes. Just has to be said. Absolutely. And we were only in a band together for about half a year. But in that time, he was a big influence on how I structured songs. Before him, I was just riff, riff, riff. Maybe I'll call this part chorus, whatever. But he pointed out, like, a lot of big songs will have verses, you know, bridges where you can freeform a little bit you know, thing about whether you have two or three choruses. And he just got me thinking about song structure a lot more. He's very good at singing. Anyone who has met him and hasn't heard him sing, he's one of my favorite singers. And... I didn't know that. You didn't know? Oh, my goodness. No. You have to hear our EP then. The Entitlement EP, by the words we use. He does all the clean singing, and I'll play the guitars. He sounds kind of like Brennan Urie and Ronnie Radke put together into, like, an ultimate you know, whatever you call it. I ultimately left the band and continued on with Currents. And then from that point, I was like, Miami is still like the funniest person I know and an excellent musician. I don't want to lose touch with him. So like I put, you know, an effort into like maintain a friendship with him. And I had no idea he was going to join URM, you know, work with you and Joey. I was like, I had no idea. I just liked Miami as a person and wanted to continue a friendship with him. And then suddenly he's with URM now. So he tells me, you should go to the summit and we'll hang out. I'm like, okay. And then he puts together some videos for the URM channel. There's that Freaky Friday one and the Tone Forge one that I did because I just kept in touch with him. The whole time I know Miami, I like never expected anything from him, for him to give me anything. I just like Miami, you know? And I helped you get an As I Lay Dying tour. <laughs> yeah, so it all puts together. So I think, you know, that should be why anyone does that. Anything is, when you network with people, it can be exhausting to talk to someone you don't like. So that might be a waste of time too, because maybe if there's not a vibe there. Well, so I won't say waste of time because one thing the book says is... um Treat everyone like they're important. So you should never just shrug someone off, even if you don't like them or whatever. I, I call Hollywooding them. Don't Hollywood people. Right. You should like treat everyone like they're important. And I understand that it can be exhausting, but it really just doesn't do you a service to leave a bad taste in someone's mouth, even if you don't think it'll affect you one day, especially with cancel culture now. <laughs> just people trying to like, take people down all the time. It's like, just be a good person. Earlier in life, I, I hear the, the phrase, nice guys finish last. I'm like, oh, I guess you don't need to be a good person to, you know, succeed. But that phrase really isn't true. It's nice guys finish last short term, but win long term. I think. Yeah. So I think that the term nice guy in some of those types of phrases, like really what they mean is pushovers. So you can be a nice person, but not be a pushover. I think pushovers finish last. Yeah, exactly. So you do have to know when to stand up for yourself and, you know, knowing your value and what you're worth and what's best for you rather than saying yes to every first opportunity that comes your way was a pushover. I think in the music industry, there are a lot of good people, but there are a lot of people that also will try to take advantage 
of you and you don't necessarily I never necessarily is trying like thinking sniffing out suspecting who's trying to take advantage of me I just kept thinking what's best for me is a business partnership or relationship with this person best for me or not and if it's not I'm not gonna do it (laughs) you know I don't think of it as like this person's trying to take advantage of me I mean maybe on some small level it crosses my mind but ultimately what I think is and this is business by the way not like relationship like you should even if pursuing a business partnership isn't the best thing like the label managers whatever I've mentioned earlier I don't want to you know enter a partnership with them yet but I'm not going to be mean to them be disrespectful to them yeah you can be cool like every label and manager that's reached out and try to represent us. I like respect them a lot. And if I ever meet them, I'd love to chat and hang out. But that's not what I think is best for, you know, me at this exact time. So I'm not going to do it just because someone tells me to. I'm going to stand up for what I think is right, you know? But just because you're not working with them, first of all, doesn't mean you can't be friends. And second, it doesn't mean that there's nothing you could ever do with them. It could mean... Like, for instance, that manager that you won't work with because you don't think it's right for you at that time, but you're friends with, could have a band that he puts you on tour with just because he thinks that that would be the best thing for his band. Like, stuff like that happens. So, question. We agree. Networking is huge. Like, it's, like, vital. Talent and networking, I think, are the biggest things. Where does punishing come in? So, say someone wants to network with you. What makes you feel like you're getting punished? Right off the bat, as we mentioned earlier, if someone messages me to check out their band, that's automatic punishment. That's like, (laughs) this person has instantly made it all about them. And then there's like the slight level above that where like, hey, huge Shadow Intent fan, would you mind checking out my band too? That's like kind of better because they are like trying to validate what I'm doing. But at the same time, it's like instantly still about them. What would be the best way to approach you to where you will actually take an interest in talking to the person and not get that, get me the fuck out of here feeling? Yeah, that's hard because I, like many others, do sometimes get a little like social anxiety. Like sometimes I do just like to be in my own environment, but. Yep. <laughs> you know, it is important to network. If you feel the same way with social anxiety, you can't let that hold you back. As Brian Hood says, he's full of the good quotes, figure it the fuck out. Don't let anything hold you back. Sometimes you have to try harder to achieve the same things as other people who might not have to try as hard, but they're still necessary steps. So networking is important and not punishing people is important. So Tim Ferriss actually brought this one up i might be paraphrasing a little bit but when he would go to a networking event he doesn't focus on being around that person as long as possible he just like let's exchange contact info maybe do something nice for them if you want to initiate a relationship with someone this is tough for me because everyone not everyone but i've been accused of being cheap before (laughs) i'm like oh i don't want to buy something for someone I don't know, but at the same time, it really doesn't cost you a lot. And if you get in the habit of just doing a small gesture, something nice for someone, I guess the net will add up. Maybe you'll buy something for someone, you never see them again, you never talk to them again. But every once in a while, one of those people is going to lead to something good for you. 
And obviously, don't think of it that way. Don't expect to get something good out of anything. All of the people I meet that I feel like I'm not like, ooh, get away from me, are trying to do something nice for me. And it's not right to just only be friends with people that do stuff for you. That's not why I have friends at all. But that's just sort of, I guess, what grabs my attention because I'm like, wow, that was really nice of you. I really want to repay the favor. And the people that don't want to repay the favor might just not even be people you would want to be associated with anyway. I guess that's how I rationalize is you kind of sort out the good people from the bad people. So if you do something nice for everyone and then not everyone does it nice back, it was like, this hurt for me to say before, but it really makes a lot of sense is that person is probably better off not being in your life anyway. You probably don't need someone in your life like that that won't reciprocate. So just let it go. Don't even worry about it. Man, that goes so deep too. That's not just business. That's like dating. That's uh, friends. That's... Yep. Not everyone is going to like you, no matter who you are. And that's not because of you. That's because of them. Separate your problem from their problem, really. That's great advice. Thank you. Just be nice to people and don't listen to nice guys finish last. It's pushovers finished last, like Al said. Being nice is a good thing, in my opinion. One thing that immediately makes me, this like tips the scale big time when I'm talking to someone in person especially, is do I feel like they're respecting my time? So for instance, at something like the summit or at NAM or some event where like I have to talk to like a thousand people or something, hundred to a thousand people in like the span of two days, a lot of people, you know, I don't have that much time for every interaction and uh, it is what it is. It's nothing about the other person. But if I feel like the person is not respecting that, to me, it tells me they don't really actually give a shit about me. They see me as some sort of like an object or some sort of a step that they can use in order to get to the next place. Like I always appreciate it when someone is respectful of my time. And so with the punishing, it's like, I've got no problem talking to anybody, but let's be real here. Like if I'm at NAM and we have a booth and there's people waiting to talk to me, don't try to talk to me for 45 minutes because it's going to put me in a really weird situation where I might have to like find a way to get out of the conversation. That's going to make me uncomfortable because I don't want to be mean. Like why put me in that position that's not going to help the relationship at all. And I feel like people who are respectful of that, I immediately take note of it. And I try to do the same thing when I meet somebody who I know has a lot going on is to the Tim Ferriss thing you said, try to keep it quick and respectful. And then if they want to talk more, that's cool too. But I always assume that people I'm meeting have their own shit going on. I don't want to be a drag on them at all in any way, shape, or form. I think the mindset to get into is, I'm going to see this person again. Yes, exactly. If you're attached to someone 20 minutes and they're trying to do other stuff, you're going to leave a negative impression. But if you introduce yourself, say goodbye, you might not even ask for contact info yet, but you know you're going to see them again. The next time you see them, you're familiar to them. They might even be happy to see you. And then maybe contact info can be exchanged because there's like a sense of familiarity. And same thing with everything is just manage your expectations. It's like not a big deal. <laughs> uh, you put a lot of pressure on yourself 
when you're like, I'm going to go to this concert. I'm going to meet the headliner. I'm going to tell him to take my band out on tour. That's like a horrible plan. <laughs> Not how you should ever, you know, go about it. But I guess staying on the radar. Top of mind. I love the Billy Decker one. If anyone's not familiar, it's like, when do a, when does a band pick someone and it's always the last person they think of? <laughs> it's true. When you pick someone to be on a tour, it's like, there's millions of bands out there, but like only a few are in the conversation. It's because, you know, they did something to make you think of them. And so instead of spending all your time catching like a big fish, just go to every pond, fish a little bit, and then maybe... Little ones will pop up here and there. That actually fits with something else that you said earlier about if you don't have a portfolio, why would X band even consider you? And to me, that's kind of part of the same thing as being respectful of somebody's time. It's also the same thing as not trying to get the big fish. It's like, I'm not saying that like, don't try to make things happen. But what I am saying is time and place is super important and everything should be appropriate like if your goal is to eventually get to big fish and uh do big things that's cool you got to be patient like for instance i talked about this on a punk rock mba podcast but one of my biggest strategies for getting like a-listers on this podcast is to start with like their assistants you know if they all have a manager start with the smallest person on that manager's roster and do something good for them, like help get more exposure for one of their smaller producers. Why should they put their A-lister on my podcast if they don't know of us, you know? Like if they've never met me or talked to me, I shouldn't ever assume that they know that like that our podcast would be good for them. And I don't take that for granted. So start with something realistic, like someone smaller on their roster who really could use the attention, make it really awesome for them, actually do give them the attention, and then you can move to the person that's a little higher up the ladder and uh, repeat, rinse, repeat. And then maybe three years later, you'll get the A-lister on. Maybe you won't, but at the very least, you helped some people's careers along. That puts you in the conversation and uh, in a positive way. That little by little by little thing has paid off tremendously for me. Right. If I do get like an interview or podcast request in the email and message, I do some research, you know, on it and look through on what they've done. And if it looks like they're not really taking it as seriously as they should, or I don't know anyone on it, or it's not giving me the right vibe, I'd, I'm probably less interested in pursuing that particular opportunity. It's something to keep in mind is you are, you know, asking, like you were saying earlier about respecting people's time and just, you know, being conscious of stuff like that. It's a really big deal, man. I feel like everybody that I approach has shit that's going on that's really important to them. Obviously, I know that's true. So I don't want to ever be in the way, basically. And I want them to see I want them to see uh, their interaction with me as a positive thing. But you said patience. I have said that always about careers and networking. But I want people to understand that the patience required, though, I think for what we're talking about is in terms of like half decades and stuff or longer. It's not like 
be patient for three months. It's like be patient for several years. And I think that that's hard for people, especially early on when they have no like idea if shit's going to work or not. And they're so like desperate for something to work out. It's hard for them to be patient. Yeah. And I think earlier on, I put a lot of pressure on myself and I was expecting things to happen instantly. The best use of your time is not spend time worried about how things could be better, but making them better. People underestimate the amount of control they have in their future and their destiny. Especially me, younger, I you know, just think things need to happen to me. I just need to wait. But Charlotte Intense a perfect example is like if we just never did anything ever, then nothing would happen. But we kept putting music out, we kept trying to write music and never had any expectations. We were never like, we need to play a show by this date. We need to release by this date. We need to do anything by any date. It was just do what we can, when we can, as good as we can do it. And, you know, just don't put so much pressure on yourself. And it was easier because I had another band that was more trying to do stuff. By not having those expectations, it just made Child of Intent so smooth and easy. I had no worry about... When I could tell my friends I was on tour, that was a huge problem three years ago is I was waiting for so long to be being able to say I was signed and touring. I think Currents got signed a year before it was announced and young me was just like, oh man, people need to know that I'm signed right now or they won't think I'm cool. <laughs> they need to know I'm going on tour. They won't think I'm cool. And now three years later, it's like none of that matters anymore. Now I'm not going to be on tour all year. Everyone's hurting. And it's not like about any one person that doesn't get to do what they're doing. Everyone should just try to make this quarantine time easier on everyone. Just like, we're going to be okay. Don't get your parents sick. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, I think this is a good place to end the podcast. Speaking of time, I want to be respectful of your time, too. You can have as much time as you want. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's been awesome talking to you. I know that it was kind of tricky to get scheduled, and that was my fault, but I really do appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no problem. It's been awesome. I'm looking forward to hopefully hanging out when we uh, get to uh, make up the Nail the Mix live stream sometime this year, hopefully. Absolutely. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at Levy URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.